In this episode of Non-Native Creative, I got to speak with my friend and longtime Japan expat Hiko Simon. No, that is not his real name, but it is the name he uses for all of his online creative projects. Hiko has a day job, but over the years as a hobby, he's also been active in the digital expat community in Japan. He runs a weekly live-streamed news recap every Sunday called Tokyo Tonight, and has also launched an app called MyCham. The app aims to help YouTube enthusiasts better organize their subscriptions, while also supporting their favorite creators. Hiko shared a lot about the road that brought him to living in Japan. He's been in the country for 20 years now, and he also gave some insights into how to make connections and build relationships with people. So make sure to find him online at, at @hikosaimon for more. Enjoy. Today I'm very excited to welcome my friend Hiko Saimon to the Non-Native Creative Podcast today. Hiko Saimon is doing a lot of creative-related projects and has been doing many creative-related projects, especially in the digital space on YouTube. And we're going to talk about his latest project, uh, My Chan, a little bit later today. But thank you so much for coming and chatting with me about your work and your experiences. I'm very excited for this. I'm not worthy. Thank you <laughs> not at me. all. Not at <laughs> all. So I want to basically... I like starting off every episode mm. of this with a question um, that I'm borrowing kind of from like the X-Men series, oh. which is uh, I'm, I ask everybody uh, to give me their origin story. Right. If you were kind of like a superhero, like uh, this international sort of man of mystery, I guess, perhaps in your case, like what is your origin story? What was the thing that kind of got you started along the path that you're on now? Okay. Uh, well, uh, that's an interesting angle on that question. And you know what? I've never, I don't think I've ever shared this before. So I'm going you have a scoop here. Oh my God, I've got an exclusive. We're an not exclusive. even two minutes in. <laughs> and it actually, I love the, the, the Marvel angle, although that's, yes, okay. So my, my origin story was I was working at a souvenir shop in downtown Auckland um, where it was all Japanese people. Mm -hmm. And there was this kind of um, rebellious 16 year old girl, a uh, half Japanese girl who had moved out of uh, home and was living with two boyfriends and doing lots of raves and trance and that sort of stuff, like, you know, partying a lot. That's busy. And we were talking about music and she gave me like a mixtape that her boyfriend made. Mm -hmm. uh, and it had, uh, at that time, I was like 19 years old and it had this sort of um, uh, happy hardcore, this hardcore techno sort of music. Mm -hmm. And I heard it and I was like, wow. I want that and she explained to me well if you want that sort of music you know you, you you can only in New Zealand you can only get that on vinyl you have to go to a record shop and there's only one or two record shops in the country that sell it you mm -hmm. know one's over there so I went to the music shop and I went started piling through this sort of music and I was like okay I, I want to buy this and then the guys at the shop would say well you got to get some proper turntables um, you know or you can buy a cheap turntable but in the end of the day, if you really want to play this stuff you're going to end up buying a Technic sooner or later anyway so mm -hmm. you should think about getting a proper turntable and uh, so I took half of my student loan at that time and I spent them on getting two Technics 1200s, Whoa. SL 1200s, uh, which got me into a lot of trouble with my dad. <laughs> when you say your student loan, do you mean like your entire uh, amount for college or like for one month? Fees in New Zealand aren't as bad as in America. No. But I was, for, you know, it was like out of 10,000 that I was taking out of loans in one year, it was about five grand for the, for the turntables, the mix of the setup. And, you know, I was 19 years old and I was like, yeah, what the hell? You know, I'll double down and I'll do this. And uh, and then it took me months to just to learn how to beat mix. I mean, in those days, these these are old fashioned turntables. This is doing by hand and by ear. You're separating your ears. Mm -hmm. But when I did that, and I started making mixtapes for people, and then I got my first gigs, like playing on the radio and getting invited to parties. And I think that was the start of my overall trajectory of kind of doing creative or quasi creative kind of things in public. Okay. I, I think the whole thing started with that mixtape. Mm -hmm 
from that girl at work and uh, getting really excited and thinking, how do I do that? I want, you know, first of all, I just wanted to listen to more of it. Mm-hmm. And then I, got, I went down this, this rabbit hole of, well, you should get the turntables. And if you get the turntables, you should learn to you know, use them properly. And mm-hmm. locking myself as a, as a student, as you can do in a room for six months, practicing until I could get beats to actually sync up properly mm-hmm. and, and listen to records properly. And then that transformed into mixtapes, which transformed into playing in public. And, and yeah, you know, uh, I've done all sorts of different things uh, since starting out from that point. But I, if I was going to go back to my origin story, it was that little mixtape. Wow. So that was kind of the thing that got you started in terms of maybe doing creative things in front of other people, as you said. Yeah. Was that also the thing that made you think, I would like to move to another country oh. and work internationally as that, well? That's a different. Yeah. So you have I, two different origin stories. I have a different origin. In terms of being an international person, that's mm-hmm. a different origin story. Mm-hmm. Um I'm an army brat. My dad's in the New Zealand army, which is, uh, you know, just like the American army, only with more sheep. Uh, you know, we moved. Uh, the exotic travel is mainly bouncing between Australia and New Zealand. And I, I, my, I first moved when I was like six months old and mm-hmm. I've moved house 37 times. Um, wow. So, yeah. Perpetual state of moving. That's kind of what army brats have in common. Uh, although I moved a lot internationally, uh, we did get a posting. There was a, there used to be a New Zealand camp in Singapore for some reason. And I lived in Singapore between six and eight. Uh, and that was a really, I think, formative and impressionable time in my life. And, mm-hmm. and of course, Singapore culturally is just such a uh, impactful, you know, sort of uh, place. So I think that the experience of living there as a kid and then going back to living in really rural country towns and army bases in New Zealand and Australia for a long time after, I think that really stuck with me. And that's what that was the seed that when the opportunity to learn Japanese and the idea that when all my friends were going to go off and live in England or uh, America or whatever, as Kiwis do, we all leave the country. Uh, my plan was always like, why would you want to go halfway around the world to another country that's really similar to the country that you're from? Mm-hmm. And thinking always, like, oh, no, I've got to get more of that Asian culture drug. So for me, it was, uh, I think the idea, the things that led to coming to Japan were from that time living in Singapore when I was a kid. Okay. So when did you first move to Japan then? Um, well, my first experience in Japan was a school trip when I was 15 years old. Um, the Japan, the New Zealand government was pushing Japanese language a lot during my time. Now they're pushing Chinese, which I think is probably correct. I was lucky I was in the little Japan boom that we had for a few years mm-hmm. when we were trying to figure out who to sell our apples to. Um, we had a lot of lessons on learning how to sell apples and stuff. Um, okay. And yeah, we had a high school exchange. So I was in Fukuoka with a, on a high school exchange. I had my Fukuoka host family for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I just had such an awesome time there as a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, geez, I've got to come back and do this again. Right. And uh, and I kind of set the goal in my head that when I do my overseas experience, which is a thing every Kiwi does, we all leave the country for a period of time to go work and explore. Mm-hmm. I just had it locked in from 15 that I'm going to Japan and just whatever I do, whether it's a part-time job or choosing papers at university or it's high school, everything would just be some small step towards that goal. So I pretty mm-hmm. much set that goal early on and I did lots of lots of trips, including the year before I graduated doing a working holiday visa. I only used about three and a half months, just my summer break for it. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of uh, gambling that I could get the connections I need to get a job after I graduated, right. which I was able to do. Mm-hmm. And I got here sort of uh, in 1999 and I've been here ever since. Wow. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's that's quite a long period of time. Like you obviously have <laughs> yeah. settled in and like built a life for yourself here now. So yeah. do you think that like that's something that helped you or made you, I guess, want to continue pursuing like these creative sort of side projects? Sure. I mean, I think there's, first of all, the thing about leaving your country in the first place. Um, there's so many 
elements to it. One, you're sort of free, particularly when you're from a small country town sort of culture like New Zealand, where everybody knows you and you're pretty much locked in as to who you are and what you do and what you don't do with everyone. I mean, I had friends who thought it was hilarious that I was DJing. Mm -hmm. My girlfriend told me, hey, dude, only cool people DJ. I was like, you know. And I, I, did, I never cared, right? I did it because I just wanted to do it, and uh-huh. I was into the music. Oh, you, you weren't in it for the, the cool factor at all? Well, I never, I, I, at that point, my expect, my social expectations within New Zealand had been set that I, I realized that you know, any aspiration towards cool within New Zealand was never going to be recognized. I oh. was never in that, I was never in that <laughs> clique. And that was fine. I was doing my own thing. The good right. part about moving around a lot as a, as a kid is if you don't become completely, you know, psychologically traumatized, is that you become pretty self-contained. It's a big if, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big if, and believe me, it goes both ways. Well, you either become pretty self, self-reliant or you become kind of completely messed up, okay. or both. Uh, but I ended up more or less where I could kind of like, well, you know, you're a person that I'm with right now who says something, but I can sort of, I can sort of set that aside, but at the same time, I was fairly honest with myself. I wasn't trying to do anything ever to be cool. Mm-hmm. I was doing it because I was into it. But you're in a place where the expectations about what you can and can't do are sort of dictated by the people who sort of know you and where you fit in the sure. clicks and in the social structure and everything. Sure. So I think this is true for anybody. First, when you're just getting out of that environment, you know, when you're leaving the people that you know, your family, your friends, and all of those expectations, and you get a reset, um, that in itself is hugely stimulating. Like, oh, here's a chance for me to go and pursue all those things. I started playing rugby. My friends couldn't believe I started playing rugby. I, I, I was, you know, DJ, all the things I sort of had in my head that I wanted to do. That really, yeah, all of those sort of social and expectation constraints being gone, it's hugely liberating, mm. I think, to come to a new country. And when you add, pile on top of that, just how stimulating and different Japan is and how basically, I mean, you know, just, just catching a train is kind of forcing you to, you know, confront and embrace change you know, the food every day the conversations that's the way that people think everything is pushing your boundaries here so if you're the sort of person who seeks out a place to sort of push your boundaries i mean every every second that happens in japan and uh yeah yeah it, it was just hugely liberating and, and and you know it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet of just anything you can think of doing you can pursue like deeply in Japan, and that's sort of what I just find right. great about being here. I mean, just perhaps a side note to what you're to this topic of being able to do kind of anything, like whatever subculture it is you're interested oh. in. You can pretty much you can find a group of people here who are interested in it. But I, do you feel like that's something that's unique to Tokyo? Like, I feel like mm. I don't I don't want to say like you know come to Japan where you can do anything, but I feel like that's very unique to Tokyo specifically, and perhaps like other big cities, maybe like Osaka or something. Yeah. But I would not expect. Like, I would not expect the same thing on the countryside of Japan, you know? Sure. Like, there are definitely oh, you mean, yeah. very different, very different uh, places, very different, I guess, uh, lifestyles mm. outside of the big city. Well, the the liberating aspect and the, the aspect of being able to control your own identity, which I think when you're in your early 20s, that's something that you're just like, even if you're trying not to be, you can't help but be obsessed with that. Uh, and so the idea that you're free from those sort of constraints, uh, even going to a country town, even going, you know, to Idaho from New Zealand, you can probably do that to an extent. You know, you're around a new town, new bunch of people, sort mm-hmm. of fresh start. You get that aspect. Mm-hmm. No question that for me, the reason Tokyo is magical and the reason that um, as someone who expected to move house every year all my life, I've been able to stay still in Tokyo for 20 years is because Tokyo moves around me mm-hmm. um, and I'm never going to cover it all. So Tokyo to me is a magical place in that respect. It, uh, yeah, and it, it's true. It's a place where maybe there's other places like New York or London, but I've been to New York and London mm-hmm. where I've chased down my, my record buying hobbies and my, you know, my other sort of things. And I mean, I know that there's certain things that you can do there that you can only do or you can do best in New York or mm-hmm. Paris. There are those super cities. 
But for me, what's great about Tokyo is it's all there, but you need the language, you need the cultural understanding to get to it. So it's kind of like it's, it's wrapped up and it's not as accessible to anyone who just comes into town as well. That adds the challenge and the interest of it and the reward, I think, from it. So for me, yeah, to- Tokyo is special. Mm-hmm. But there's a degree of just, just leaving where you're from and just having a fresh start. I think that would apply to it to an extent anywhere. And some of the benefits of the different culture would happen anywhere in Japan. But Tokyo is, is special, mm. no question. Do you feel like that fades or has that changed for you after, I mean, like you said, mm. you know, a 20-year period? Yeah. I feel like a lot of people arrive here, especially very fresh and very excited for like their first <laughs> year, perhaps three years. And then that fades for some people or uh, it changes significantly. Like what's your perspective on that? Yeah, uh, it's funny. Uh, when you come here you s- and you're asserting your new identity in a new place and you're pursuing all the things you always wanted to do, mm-hmm. um, you're so determined that you look at all the other people and what's happened to other people and that's not going to happen to me. I'm in control of my destiny. I'm not going to go through this huge rise and this huge crash and this huge sort of back and forth mm-hmm. of acceptance. And then you see it happening to you and you see it happening to everyone around you and you just realize it's almost like biological. It happens to everybody mm-hmm. and you, you definitely get there's a five year uh, cycle of people, I think, going through ups and downs almost at exactly the same times. It's weird. It's like the grief cycle. It's like a, a very positive version of the grief cycle. But it, it, the, 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 the adrenaline high and the excitement that you get. Uh, and people can sometimes burn themselves out just in the first year trying to do too much and oh, not yeah. be in control of it. And then there's just that natural coming off the high crash phase. It's like, is this really where I'm supposed to be? What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, you have, you'll have moments that that'll crash and it'll impact you. And then you'll sort of start to sort of come back and, and you'll get a lot of people leave after one year. You get a lot of people, most people leave after three years. And it's just going through different phases of this getting to a point of equilibrium where you figure out how to live here on your own terms and do the things that you want to do. But, but getting there takes time and it takes a lot of uh, internal compromise. Um, and a lot of growth. It takes a lot of growth. But I, it's funny. I see so many people going through the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, in the end of the day, um, you know, you have to figure out uh, how much a, the place changes you. And, and some people, when they when they feel that happening, that's what spooks them sure. and makes them leave. Um, if you can embrace the way that Japan changes you, mm-hmm. um, then you can, you know, uh, you can become comfortable here. And if you can get past all of that, it really is pretty much all the same, I, I find, for anyone after about five years. Mm-hmm. But you combine that with being young uh, and with wanting to do all sorts of stuff right. and the overstimulation of this place. Yeah, it can make people go crazy, actually, right. if you're not yeah, in control. Do you think that that's unique to Tokyo specifically? Or do you think that the same thing would apply to, say, you know, like, uh, someone moving from outside the U.S. to New York City or L.A. or mm. maybe like moving to London or like an, an, any other like, you know, big metropolis city? Yeah. I want like I, I haven't had the experience of living in one of those cities for yeah. an extended period of time, so I can't really say. But I kind of I kind of wonder, like, if there's a if there's a similar kind of cycle like mm. to use that word of people who come and go and you know choose to adapt or not yeah that's a good question and obviously i don't know because i haven't experienced it mm. either but uh, the extra layer you've got all of that people who go to new york for a specific or, or los angeles people go to los angeles to break in a tv and mm. they go through and they get a minor role and they get excited and they're working in coffee shops and i, I met people who do that and um I know how that probably goes on a huge, you know, am I going to live here and just, you know, am I going to accept not being a star and how am I going to do this? You have that sort of thing and maybe in both places. But I think the the really thick cultural adaptation element, when you're feeling stressed or when you're feeling like as happens from time to time, like things are not going your way and you're starting to question everything. In Japan, you always have the added, added layer uh, question of, you know, 
do I even belong here? Mm, no. am, I, am I ever going to fit in here? Right. That's kind of, as a Westerner being in Japan, that's unique. Um, and I, I suspect you don't have that per se in New York or other places where, which are more diverse because there's always other people like you mm-hmm. that you can find and relate to. In Tokyo, it's a very small group. Mm. Everybody uh, knows each other like here, I feel oh, yeah. like, <laughs> at least in the at least West- in the Western expat community, most people have some kind of like connection. Like yeah. it's very It's very easy to connect with, you know, people who are similar to you, I suppose. It's a very small town within a huge city. Mm-hmm. It's a strange mm. dichotomy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So uh, this kind of relates then. So uh, a lot of people, I feel like, especially uh, Westerners, I should say, uh, come here at least over like the last 10 to 15 years or so. They come here and, and along with uh, their decision to move here, they also choose to I guess, uh, kind of make their lives here into something of a, uh, a media project, <laughs> yeah. uh, by which I'm, I mean YouTube or social media or whatever. And it's really cool, actually. A lot of people are putting together some really cool things and sharing their perspectives. Mm. And um, you started doing work, uh, well, I shouldn't say like work work, but you had like a, a project. You began mm. a project on YouTube. Uh, how long, how, when did oh. you start your YouTube channel? Um, I started probably about 2000, actually, you know what? I think it was 2008, actually. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm, I, I was about to say six, but you know what? It was after that. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was tinkering. It was just a, it was just a, a minor creative video editing thing. Mm-hmm. And one day seeing something on YouTube that made me think, oh, that looks like, that converges a whole bunch of my interests and, and, and make, made me think about starting a channel seriously. So I think I became really like, as a creator started in 2008 i started making videos in 2006 but i was just like editing videos from my rugby team and mm-hmm. making music videos and i was just getting into the idea of video editing and mm-hmm. i was more interested in editing than i was in actually like putting myself on a camera for the first couple of years and i was using google video when it was separate to youtube because um, it had better technical specs and i was just looking at it as a technical thing mm-hmm. and uh, youtube used to have terrible resolution in the beginning it had oh. really low low res videos and uh, and time limits it was like five minute time limit that's right yeah and i was like why would anyone want to use youtube <laughs> <laughs> uh but somewhere along the line i caught the bug and i switched mm, over so initially what were what kind of videos were you making i so, mean after you after you kind of moved to you know presenting things yeah. yourself so what 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 kind of um got me was like from before there was any online video, I mean, I was in Japan from the late 1990s, so there was sort of, you know, Netscape 2.0 just come out, you know, exciting times. Mm-hmm. And I think I was a, I was always like a, a news and politics like freak, you know, from like my university days. I, I love debate and that sort of thing. And when I found some really good Japan-related uh, online quasi-intelligent news discussion online, uh, and, I, and that was one of my little outlets, and I just enjoyed that a lot. And when I... I think I discovered, uh, when I first discovered a famous YouTuber, Philip DeFranco, when he was first making, when I first saw Mm. one of his videos, I thought, well, here's a guy who's actually taking, kind of doing what I do online in text chat and kind of doing it in a really compressed and interesting sort of video format. And his videos looked amazing, like the quality and how, and the first part of me was the geek saying, how did he get his video that good quality? And you know, what's the trick he's playing? Because there used to be a lot of tricks, like Mm -hmm. with with the technical specs of YouTube. So I was interested in how did he get the video such good quality? And I thought, well, that's what I want to do for Japan. Mm-hmm. And it was more kind of like, uh, let's see if I can do a version of that myself. And it was just like a technical creative sort of challenge to I myself. See. And um, what was funny was I made three or four videos that, you know, of course got like, you know, 10 views or 20 views. And mm-hmm. I was cool with that. Um, but I, I did them in Japanese and some people gave me some comments like, how did you learn your Japanese, dude? Uh, oh, it's kind okay. of like, well, okay, 
this is not going to be a language learning channel, but I'm just going to do just one video where I'm just going to explain how I learn Japanese. So you stop asking me this question. I see. <laughs> and, and that's the one that went viral. Of course, it's always the one that you don't plan or want to be viral right? that goes viral. <laughs> right. And that did. Uh, and, and, and I, you know, yes, that was kind of overwhelming, but that sort of was the, the, the start of my launch pad and getting, you know, being connected with the community and, and, and doing it regularly. Right. When did that happen? Well, that was right after I started. That was like my fourth or fifth video. So that was like oh, wow. 2008. So what does, at that time, what did going viral mean? <laughs> that was like 20,000 views. 20,000 views was uh, enough to, to go like, wow, this is really something well, special. Well, that was, that was, I was featured on the, 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 when they used to have featured videos on the top page of YouTube mm -hmm. for each country, I was featured on the top page for YouTube Japan. Cool. I, I, did, a, I did a video in Japanese on how I, uh, how I learned Japanese from a perspective of how you can learn English. Um, mm. just, just practical suggestions. And it turned out, I, I learned later that the staff at YouTube, in those days, there were like two or three people at YouTube who watched every single video wow. and would curate the, 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 the featured stuff. And it turned wow. out... Uh, no matter how unpopular or unattractive, generally, you know, my sort of setup was, the staff at YouTube were like, they, they, they like my stuff. And, yeah. and I actually got to be actually kind of friends with people there afterwards as well, which I thought, thought was super cool because I was just as interested in how it all works and, and, and mm. that as much as, as pursuing the sort of the hobby aspect. So yeah, it just sort of took, as, as these things happen, just sort of cool. took off on its own. So that was before like the algorithm was ever introduced. That was when actual people were making decisions about what to I feature. Think they, they had algorithms, mm. but in those days, it was a lot more manual. I think they have algorithms now because there's how many, you know, dozens of hours per second get oh, uploaded. Yeah, it's, it's just nuts. impossible. Yeah. Um, I remember when I first met someone from YouTube and they, uh, they said, they were talking about, we were talking about creators and some of the creators who I know whose videos get less than 100 views per video and they knew them. I'm like, dude, do you watch every video? And the person looked at me like, dude, you know, it's like <laughs> the bane of my existence. Yes, I have to watch every single video. Wow. So there was what a time a it seems that it was like that. Or I couldn't even imagine that. But yes. Cool. So this, times. Is, this is continued then too. Like you, you host a weekly show called Tokyo Tonight yes. every Sunday evening, correct? That's correct. Yeah, Sunday evening Japan time. And you talk about basically the issues, top issues or top topics, I guess you could say, from mm. Tokyo and from Japan from the week, correct? More or less, yeah. I just go through what I find interesting in the news, the stuff that I'd pick out as topics that I'd like to talk about. And uh, I give my spin and it's uh, live and there's live comments. So I interact with, I can take questions or take topics that people request. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's a good crowd of people. And uh, I get to just talk about what I like. And it's it's pretty cool. And it's mostly talking about Japan, what's going on in Japan. And not just what the news stories are, but for me, it's just about what's more interesting is understanding like, when you heard that, you know, Japan's having a trouble with Korea, the context for that is always missing. And for me, it's the context that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to focus on the context of all the stories about Japan. So if you're interested in Japan and you're following news about Japan, here's me filling you in on what it's actually all mm -hmm. about. So I, I like that and I do that every week and I get to slip in other things that I like to do, like jamming on some music and doing other <laughs> right. things. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a me show. Right. <laughs> hey, <you laughs> But it's know, fun. It's, it's a, fun. It's fun yeah. to do. So, and then kind of, I guess, maybe the next evolution then of, the, of your work uh, and your explorations of how YouTube can be used is your, uh, I guess, I don't know if I should call it app or? Yeah, app is all right. App, yeah, yeah your app, MyChan. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. Well, essentially like, it all flows from the same place, which is when I first started watching YouTube and I saw someone doing something cool and it looked like it was within reach. It looked like something, how do they do that? It looked magical to me being able to create a really well-produced video on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Like I was a TV addict kid. The only thing I had in common moving house as a kid was 
uh, I'd always have the TV and there'd be the same TV shows. And to me, TV is like this magical thing that only huge corporations can create. Mm -hmm. So watching individual creators creating professional level content on YouTube, to me was a huge like, wow, how do they do this? And if he's doing it, can I do it? Mm -hmm. And um, I think with, and I worked in IT for a long time, and I was familiar with how IT projects get done at a big sort of corporate level, but uh, to me it was still, there was a magic element where I know people build apps all the time, and I know that there are people who can do things. There are apps that I use uh, that were YouTube related that I, that, that I like using as well, but mm -hmm. still the idea of building an app that can enhance the viewing experience of YouTube was still essentially something magical, but that I see people doing. And I knew I had parts of the knowledge to that. I knew how to pl plan out a project, and, but I had parts that I didn't know, which is anything about how to you know, tap into the YouTube APIs or actually build an app. And essentially that element to me was magical, but it seemed to be sort of achievable. So I, I, I was able to talk to somebody who was able to give me some advice to plug the, the gaps. And it was sort of two goals. One, I had been talking to YouTube about this for years, about what I saw as being the, the functionality, uh, the gap between YouTube being kind of what it is where a site where people go for, for fun for, to go down video watching rabbit holes. And what I thought of it as is something which, you know, should be the primary form of media consumption. It should be replacing TV altogether and why it wasn't getting to that point. Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of a function gap where I spent 10 years waiting for someone to build that app that I had in my head and wow. no one did it. And I thought, well, if I'm thinking of it, even if it's niche, you know, YouTube's on a billion person scale. So there must be some people who would see the same benefit. So it was this thing that was kind of frustrating me and driving me crazy of a, a functionality gap. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, wanting, just out of curiosity myself, seeing this is something that I, I want to build. I've got this really creative idea for an app that I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I don't want to be dependent on waiting for someone else to build it. I want to learn mm -hmm. how to execute a project like this myself. So it was as much about learning how to do that mm -hmm. for the idea of wanting to do it again with the next idea and just learning that process as mm -hmm. it was, you know, wanting to address this frustration I'd felt for so long about this uh, functionality uh, of being able to essentially curate and create your own brain-based algorithm for all the videos that you want to see so that you're seeing the stuff that you would see instead of TV. Right. So if I'm if I'm like a, a user, a MyChan user, yeah. if I sign up for the service and I decide to use it, what am I able to do with it? Yeah. Essentially what it does is it taps into the subscriptions functionality. So taking the subscriptions, which I realize is something that not everybody who uses YouTube does. Mm -hmm. Most people just depend on the logarithm to just feed them videos, which right. it'll sometimes give you videos you want to watch. And sometimes it'll give you videos like, why are you making me watch another Kanye video? <laughs> uh, you know, it's because they're driving people to where the ads are right um, and you don't always want to watch content which is where the ads are in fact sometimes you want to you know find content that's not so popular mm -hmm. um, and so from my perspective um, you the only way you can tr that you can control what you want to see on YouTube is uh, either by searching video by video or mm -hmm. subscribing to channels that consistently put out content that you like and as a creator you know you want people to subscribe to you so that they'll find and keep up with your videos even if you're not high up on the search rankings right so yeah, for me, for people who understand the subscriptions functionality and how great it is, the only problem then that you have is that essentially the subscriptions functionality on YouTube is just like Twitter. It's just a, a stream of content. And, and as it aggregates and snowballs over the years, um, it, it's all, it becomes unmanageable. You end up with all of these dead or old sort of subscriptions that you can't manage anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's this flood of, you know, you might be interested in news videos, you might be interested in Japan videos or music videos, but it all just comes as a flood, unsorted flood. Right. And it occurred to me from my content, you know, if I could just create like categories and just press on, hey, category music videos or category Japan blogs, 
and just be able to watch those like a TV channel. Mm -hmm. You know, I could keep up with everybody and I could watch what I felt like based on my mood and I wouldn't have to do all this work that YouTube makes you do. So Mm. for me, it was the way that I wanted to consume. And yeah, I I saw a a gap and I I had a really clear idea of how you would um, execute that like as an API function, as an app. And I talked with some people, I managed to connect with some people that uh, we were able to build it together. And um, that's what it does. You connect your account Um, with uh, my tool, which basically gives you tools to be able to um, power up your subscription so that you can organize it mm-hmm. into the sort of into specific lists, uh, groups of channels, right? Uh, which I call bundles of channels by category so that you can uh, have all your stuff organized and mm-hmm. you can just do one click and just watch your, all your latest videos and catch up with I one click. I see. So if I'm, a, if I'm a heavy YouTube user and I have like 100 different subscriptions and I just get like this flood of information every day when I go to check YouTube, I yeah. can basically make like groups. I can be like, okay, yeah. these are the people that I like that talk about Japan or these are the tech people that I follow. Yeah. I'll put these into these different bundles. And then when I'm ready to watch that topic, I'll go click on the bundle and be able to watch those things only. Right. Okay. And I that see. means, uh, and when you're particularly like, yeah, when you're wanting to keep up with content and there's stuff which you know you're going to search for every week. Mm-hmm. And, and the algorithm, of course, will propose when it recognizes that you're watching content over and over. But um, like specific creators and stuff like that, they'll disappear into the other. And this is, mm-hmm. this is the problem with being a small creator. Is that uh, or having channels that aren't haven't haven't gone viral yet? Right. Is that it can be really unless you're deliberately following them, it's hard to do. And you know when you find good content and you and you want you prefer to watch that than a, you know, than some of the ads or whatever that get put in mm-hmm. front. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it puts you in control of what's being presented to you, and you can catch up. Right. Um, and keep up to date. So yeah, that's I've what heard I that. I've heard that as a complaint from creators on YouTube. They're like, oh. for whatever reason, you know, like, oh, YouTube isn't telling my uh, subscribers when I put out a new video or like that people aren't getting a notification, even though they've requested a notification. Like there are these little hiccups or mistakes or errors or whatever they are in the system that for whatever reason, sometimes prevent people from being able to access yeah. information as soon as it becomes available. So yeah. and that's it, something to address. Yeah. And it's like true that creators are hardcore um, consumers as well. Fact, fact is, it used to be more so back in the day, back when there was more of a sort of Japan-oriented community that we would watch each other's videos, partly in the hope that they would watch back. Uh, and and, and it w- we were the most dedicated watchers of other and supporters of other creators. And it was true, and I was always gratified that there were so many people who watched me without creating. Um, but yes, when you become passionate about following and supporting people, um, it becomes very frustrating when you feel like uh, YouTube itself is inhib- inhibiting your ability to do that. Mm. So yeah, for me, I was just fixing a gap in the functionality to do what I wanted to do. Um, and that's what the project was. And for me to be able to not just have that idea, but to do what I considered until doing it was magic. Mm-hmm. To be able to actually uh, take the idea and execute it into something that works was pretty cool. Mm. Do you feel like then too, like, I, I don't know, everybody has a different approach to this. Like when you, or if you do talk about these kind of, these, uh, I guess the word I'll use is side projects. Yeah. Do you talk about these like with your with your colleagues or with your friends here? Or mm. are the world's kind of kept very separate? <laughs> yeah, that's a, I think one thing I've picked up from Japan a little bit, uh, and actually that I've come to embrace is um, compartmentalization. Mm. Um, so for example, I, uh, my work life, and honestly, and this is just how Japanese people are, and so when, when you're like having a home life or a work life and you're talking about your hobbies all the time um, with people that are not involved in those hobbies, people are actually, well, sometimes they might feign interest and say, well, that's interesting or whatever, but really everyone is so, f- it's kind of weird to bring that stuff up at work, like in Japanese companies and so on. Mm-hmm. And at first I found that weird because to me that was a part of me asserting my identity, but I actually came to embrace the idea that when you're doing whatever you're doing, you're really focused on it. So I love 
I talk with creators and people who are interested in this project about it all the time, and I consult and I seek out people who can help me and who are interested in it. Mm -hmm. But I generally don't bring it into where I'm like at work or, and even actually very much at home. I mean, for me, these are things that I'll, I'll, I'll focus on work when I'm at work, home when I'm at home, mm -hmm. and creating when I'm creating. Um, and I actually kind of like being able to fully focus and, mm -hmm. and do it that way. So that's kind of a, a way that Japan has changed me a little bit. I see. And then do you think that like the, uh, choosing to develop this, to develop your app here, mm. were there any kind of maybe um, factors that made it more challenging or made it easier perhaps to try to develop that app here? Or do you think that's something that you could have done anywhere really? I could have definitely done it anywhere. Um, I was lucky that in the small, uh, you know, small town that we live in of expats in Tokyo, I mm -hmm. knew a person who was experienced at managing these sorts of projects and could connect me with the resources who are often outside of Japan in mm -hmm. terms of developers. Um, I've worked with, for example, um, uh, you take the the, the the way the Japanese people do the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you're a Japanese person and you want to build an app, um, you don't talk to a project manager who connects you with developers in Pakistan. Um, as I was able to get a, 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 and a graphic designer in Hong Kong and do this sort of awesome global sort of project. When Japanese people do a project, when they want to build an app, they lock themselves in a room for six months and they do it all, all by themselves. And I remember like back in my DJing days, I found a, a really cool VJ app, which I could have my laptop set up and I could run the whole VJ thing on, on my own while I was DJing. And this was, I, I wasn't looking for anything Japanese, but it turned out that this creator was Japanese and he lived in Tokyo. And uh, yeah, I was able to actually message him about one of the updates like, and connect with this guy. And this guy had literally locked himself in a room, just learned how to program and created an entire like computer program for this from scratch and could implement everything. But, but people do this in a really non, how, how would I put it? I suppose there are communities and there are, there's a, there is a startup community and there are people who do things, but the Japanese tendency is to do stuff on your own. Mm. Uh, and if you can connect with those people, there's really deep knowledge. But uh, the idea of doing collaborative projects and reaching out with strangers and stuff like that is, I think, harder to do in Japan. I see. It's easier to do being in the international community because we tend to have that predisposition. Mm. Um, mm. If anything, I, I would say it's probably harder than easier in Japan. I mean, there's lots of people around, but connecting with them is really hard. Right. So this kind of leads into maybe my next question then. Yeah. So if if uh, if I or if somebody watching or listening is a person that's thinking of doing a project here, doing something creative in, mm. in Japan or, or for that matter, any other place, is there anything, any kind of advice? Is there anything that you wish like, oh, I wish I had done things this way or I wish I hadn't done that thing. That was extremely <laughs> like not a good choice at the time. Yeah. Like, is there any, like looking back and even now, like looking, thinking about the ways that you've approached perhaps even like your professional work, not like the mm. creative work too. Um, is there is there any kind of like advice that you have for somebody who's thinking of developing something <laughs> creative in another country? It's a big question. Yeah, and, mm. and from that specific angle of doing it in a different country, uh, that's interesting as well. I, could, I think about it all the time without, I, I mean, it's where I am. I've lived half my life in Japan now, mm. so I, I sort of, I must admit, I've, I, I lose that perspective over time sure. by the fact that I'm here. Um, but look, the first thing, and going back to that really exciting adrenaline pumped few years when I first got here, um, I, was a, I was a mediocre DJ. I had a kind of a niche interest in drum and bass music, which wasn't very big in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of funny. Uh, what was true as a Westerner, and very specific to being a Westerner in Tokyo, and, and maybe at that time, I don't know if this has changed, was definitely I got opportunities and doors opened. People are excited to get a foreigner into their crew. 
you know, when there's a when there's a bunch of DJs, when I go to a drum and bass event and I talk to a DJ and I say, you know, I love your music, I DJ myself, they'll say, get it out, line up for the next event. They want to have oh. a, they want to have an international DJ in their lineup, even if you know, uh, the doors open that would not open elsewhere, and that was something. And, and look, I took the philosophy from the get go go hard or go home say yes to everything mm -hmm. you know do everything so you get i got opportunities that um probably were unique to my situation being in japan and i took full advantage of everything what i found was it meant i was constantly um surrounded by people when those opportunities came up that were way above my level at everything and that forced me to stretch mm -hmm. uh, and i found that really inspiring and really challenging mm. and I, I met some great people like from all sorts of different creative sort of uh, backgrounds like um DJs for one thing, um, you know, uh, I, I got in with some friends who are architect, uh, mm -hmm. had, had architecture background, and they were doing all sorts of creative sort of projects and stuff as well. And you know, they'd have me make their music for their sort of uh, video for their for their mountain bike design that a, a group made. Uh, that I was sort of uh, on the side of the project, and people were looking for ways to involve me. So mm. I'd certainly, you know, that was something that I was really blessed just to have, and it was lucky. But I thought, well, you know, you still you take it, take it full right. advantage of the opportunities. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, it, it really stretches you because you realize how committed people are to their hobbies. Oh, here. there the, are no casual hobbies in Japan. That's some, that is very interesting <laughs> to me as well. Like, because as a person personally uh, that <laughs> likes to do many different things, I like to kind of like dabble in a bunch. In a, I've always been this way. Like, I choose yeah. a couple things to get like intermediate levels good yeah. at, and then I move on to the next thing. No, like people oh. will like devote all of their free time to their one hobby. Yeah. Like, uh, admittedly, it's not everybody, but that's something but that I've been like really kind of blows me away sometimes and like you don't do anything else <laughs> like yeah. really nothing like this is the one thing but that's a compartmentalization thing as well they do do other things mm. um i mean some of my favorite like musicians there are people like chart musicians and djs who are salary men you yeah know, they have they have day jobs wearing a suit at a car and, and well it's hard to make money it's hard to you know make a whole life out of yeah. being you know a musician at small clubs somewhere i think a absolutely but the point is when you meet that person all that you see is a really well polished oh totally you know completely in it and they are yeah but they've got like sometimes multiple whole different lives of things and, and, and this is what i one thing i just love about like working in japan as well is there are people who i've worked with even been friends with at least at work you know mm -hmm. been friendly with for a long time um and i find stuff like this out about them after five years of knowing them sometimes <laughs> yeah. and i find out that they're like amazing at this thing yeah and i find that so inspiring like yeah. that to run into these people all the time it's one thing i love about japanese i've come to love about japanese people um people get frustrated that japanese sort of you know present themselves as being boring and they're not open and so on sometimes mm. and it's not that they're not open per se it's just the way that they sort of organize their brains but the way that they commit to, the, to their hobbies and the creative things that they do yeah, that that's like oh, I've got to up my game. I've got to mm. actually go and. Um, I think that's true. Like if you if you really do, I think your advice about you know saying yes to things and you know <laughs> making sure that you are there and you know participating and being a part of whatever it is that you think you want to be interested, you want to you want to be a part of it. You need to be there. You can't just show up and expect like, oh, yeah. hello everybody, I'm ready to participate. Like you have to be there, showing up every week or every month or whatever. You know, yeah. showing that you're into it as well. Yeah, uh, I think that's really important. But also your point about compartmentalization, like. It's kind of funny, like how s even after you've known someone for several years and you think that you're pretty close and then yeah. they come out with something that's like, you know, oh, I'm interested in this or I can do this yeah. thing really well. You're just like, why did you never tell me that? And they're yeah. like, oh, I was too shy. I'm like, what? But for me, that's cool. And this is just, yeah, it's, I'd say this is an aspect of Japanese culture, but yeah, it's the, it's the artisanal mentality, the idea that, you know, um, and, and I know this when I was surfing or when I was playing rugby, if I was talking about 
surfing at while I'm at, with my rugby team. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you talking about surfing? We're playing rugby mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like well, that's strange. But at the same time, it means that yeah, you're always like taking. You find out these interesting layers about people, right? Um, but I really respect the way that ja- the, the way that Japanese people go about creativity in a way because uh, there's a perception which I think is kind of correct that creativity is generally kind of suppressed by Japanese society. Um, mm, that's a whole oh man, that, we could talk that, about that's that a whole huge topic. But <laughs> but it, it kind of means that when people do it, they do it serious. They don't mm-hmm. do it casually in a way that suppression kind of puts a pressure into it, condenses it. And it means that I think I think the creativity that you find in Japan is super, actually super compressed, super creative. Um, but in a way, the environment sort of fosters that the way that you have to actually focus so hard on stuff. And mm. yeah, that 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 has completely changed my personality. It's changed my outlook on doing creative stuff. Actually, right, right, okay. So kind of shifting topics yeah. here <laughs> so near the end of one. things. Um, for you then, in terms of like creativity, is what is is there a project that's coming up, or like is there something that you really hope people mm. uh, focus on that you're doing now? Like, uh, what's kind of the the thing that you're that you're excited about in terms of your creative work? Yeah. Um, so. I've got a bunch of projects which, <laughs> as happens, are on hold. And for me, it's all about sustaining, be, creating stuff which I can sustain even when I'm busy with other stuff so that I don't... Uh, a big mistake people do is burn out by taking too much on. Mm-hmm. So uh, one project that I've got, which is uh, moving, although it's uh, been on hold for two months, but I've gone about two-thirds of the way through and I want to wrap up this year. Mm-hmm. So hopefully it'll come out soon. Is um, uh, Tokyo Digital Remix. It's a, it's a, it's a group of um, musicians far more talented than myself um, in different countries in Sweden and America in um, uh, UK and you know uh, we're all ca- we're, we're all linked through um, my vlogging and so on but uh, I found there's a bunch of people who are in bands or produce music and so on and we just found um, there's a lot of improvisation but being able to share samples and remix and, and collaboratively make music to me as well as someone who consumes a lot of music I consider making music to be sort of magical as well, and mm-hmm. to make music that sounds the way that I would consume um, is a is a really high bar. That when I meet people who can do that, it's like wow, I wish I could do that. So one, it's hugely stimulating and rewarding to be able. To, I get a buzz when I'm able to come close to doing something good about that. But around that project, some of the work I've been doing on that has been like um, all the all the way through to. Um, writing lyrics and getting a vocalist to actually record a vocal track on something which I made and so uh, this just to clarify this is a group of people that's working together to make a mm, track to be yeah specifically um, we make music and share music and we got the idea um, based on some YouTube videos of uh, somebody make a track which they share with the uh, with, with five other people in this group of people um, and we'd all gr- agree to base it with all the stems and all the samples from it and we would remix it into our own style of making music and mm. we all have very different styles um, and, and the idea is we're always trying to one up and impress each other doing it, and it forces us in the in the desire to impress everyone else to up our own games and learn and, and to do more with the tools that we have. So we've got a project where we're going to take turns giving a track to each other and then having everyone remix it and then reacting mm. to listening to each other's remixes. And mm-hmm. I've, I've got three episodes done out of a plan five right now. Cool. And it's I I I I'm jumping out of my seat when I'm editing it. It's so exciting to cool. me. Cool. It's called what? Tok- uh, Tokyo Digital, Digital Remix. And Tokyo Digital Remix. Again, okay. it's not uh, when it's ready. Uh, you know, uh, it'll be announced on my general, on my YouTube, and on my Twitter, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a project. When I talk about, when I think about something that's exciting to me, all the aspects of it is it's not just the output. I mean, the output is super exciting as well, but also figuring out how to how to unify like-minded people globally to be able to stretch your own yeah. uh, creativity. 
I think that's uh, the way they take. Uh, ever since the internet, we've had that, but it's still, you know, it's still challenging to collaborate mm. across borders effectively. Sure. And I think we're heading into a time where creatively collaborating is going to be like playing Fortnite. It's going to be like getting online. Uh, at the, it'll be easier to do remotely than mm-hmm. to do in person. Um, and I and, and for me, being at the leading edge of that and figuring out how to how to create something cool easily with other people in different locations is. That's the stuff which excites me most, and that's probably where I'm focusing on outside of my regular activities right now. Right. Cool. That sounds awesome. So we can check that out. We'll keep an eye (laughs) out for that. We can watch for Tokyo Tonight every week. Every week. And we can look for Uh, MyChan as well, your MyChan project. uh, M-Y-C-H-A-N, MyChan.tv. It's it's an online web app. Um, uh, Hopefully, if it it picks up more traction, we'll get get a mobile app as well. Cool. Uh, But check it out. If you've got a YouTube channel and you like subscriptions, it's the best way to watch YouTube. (laughs) Fantastic. So where can people find you online if they want to look you up? Yeah. I'm Hiko Simon for everything, H-I-K-O-S-A-E-M-O-N, and it's for Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, if you just go in and do a slash Hiko Simon, you'll find me. I'd say the best ones are actually Twitter and YouTube. Mm. What I'm kind of stuff do you those. usually share about? Um, well, most of it, honestly, it's Japan, uh, goings on in Japan, uh, mm. and anything else that grabs my attention. But um, a, a lot of Japan news-related stuff, uh, honestly, although all of my creative pursuits I also share through those channels as well. Excellent. All right. Well, I follow you there, so I will continue to watch for your updates there (laughs) on all of those platforms. Thank you very much for chatting with me. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Non-Native Creative. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you never miss an interview. Also, please make sure to stop by the project Patreon at patreon.com slash non-native creative. Patrons can get access to Patreon-only discussions, bonus behind-the-scenes media, interview transcripts, and access to patron-only live streams. Your support will help make sure the series can continue to share exciting, interesting stories from creative people working across borders. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.